Good evening, friends, and welcome to Sleepy Tom Tales, a podcast aimed at helping you to get a good night's sleep. Do you find your mind troubled with the stresses of modern life, especially when the lights are out and you're trying to get a restful night? Does your spinning mind keep you awake? Follow my voice down the path towards a good night's rest. Listen to me tell a story that will keep your mind from wandering to your daytime problems, the ones you can't solve right now, and will be easier to solve while rested. Listen to my voice and allow yourself to drift, following the twists and turns of the story, but slowly letting go and drifting into sleep. Let my voice wash over you at a comfortable volume and allow yourself to be distracted from the stresses and worries that play on your mind. Whether you need help falling asleep or going back to sleep in the middle of the night, you can trust me to keep you company and help you to wake up tomorrow in a rested state. You may need to try out Sleepy Time Tales for a few nights to get used to the slightly strange idea, but I believe it will be well worth your while. I'm here to work with you, to create a safe space, a cocoon in which you can curl up and allow nature to take its course. So settle down, relax, and allow yourself to get lost in my telling of tonight's story. Before we get to the story, I'd like to ask for a couple of minutes of your time. If you're finding Sleepy Time Tales useful, if it helps you to get a restful night, and you would like to keep it going out to thousands of insomniacs just like you, and you have the means to help out, please consider supporting it on the Patreon at patreon.com sleepytimetales. This is monthly support that helps me keep the lights on, but also can get you bonuses based on your contribution level. From as little as $2 a month, you get weekly access to early release on the main episodes, so that you get your fresh sleep aid on a Wednesday instead of a Sunday. And $5 gets you weekly bonus minisodes, special edits, and a monthly megasode, which is all the month's releases in one big listen. But of course, monthly might be a big ask. So if you would rather not make a commitment like that, you can make once-off contributions through the tip jar on the website. I earn South African rands, so even a couple of dollars really is very helpful and goes very far. And if you would like to help out the show, but you actually don't want to or cannot contribute financially, you can simply spread the word. If someone you know struggles to sleep, just tell them about Sleepy Time Tales and get them to try it out and see if it works for them. That's all it takes. I'm going to keep it short for tonight. Thank you for your time. Let's get on with the reading. We return tonight with Rides on Railways by Samuel Sidney and we pick up on his journey through the British railway system with our arrival at Camden Station. But thus gossiping we have reached Camden Station and must take advantage of an unusual halt to look into the arrangements for building wagons and trucks and conveying coals, merchandise, goods and all livestock included between pigs and bullocks. Not without difficulty did Mr. Robert Stevenson succeed in inducing the directors to purchase 30 acres of land here. It was only by urging that if unused, the surplus could be sold as a profit, that he carried out his views. 
genius can foresee results which, to ordinary capacities, are dark and incomprehensible. Since 1845, it has been found necessary to take in an additional plot to three more acres, all now fully occupied. In no respect were the calculations of parties engaged in the construction of railways more at fault than with regard to the station accommodation needed for goods traffic, which on the principal lines has added full 25% to the original estimates. George Stevenson calculated the cost of getting over Chat Moss at £40,000. His opponent proved that it would cost 400000 but it was executed at exactly the sum Stevenson set down, while the capital involved in providing station room for merchandise at Liverpool and at Manchester has probably exceeded the original estimate for the whole line. On this railway, the increase of goods traffic has been of very recent date. At a very early period after the opening of the line, the merchandise department became the monopoly of the great carriers, who found it answer their purpose to provide the profits afforded by the discount allowed to carriers by the railway company, without seeking to develop an increase of occupation. Under this system, while carriers grew rich, the goods traffic remained stationary. But when the amalgamation with the Grand Junction, which had always been its own carrier, took place, a great reduction in rates was made, as well as arrangements for encouraging the conveyance of every kind of saleable item. The company became a common carrier, but employing Mrs. Pickford and Chaplin and Horn to collect goods. The result was a marvellous increase, which has been progressing ever since. A regular trade is now carried on between London and the most remote parts of the kingdom, in every conceivable thing that will bear moving. Sheep have been sent from Perth to London, and Covent Garden has supplied tons of the finer description of vegetables to the citizens of Glasgow. Every Saturday, five tons of the best fish in season are dispatched from Billingsgate to Birmingham, and milk is conveyed in padlock tins from and beyond Harrow at the rate of about one penny per gallon. In articles which are imported into both Liverpool and London, there is a constant interchange according to the state of the market. Thus a penny per pound difference may bring a hundred chests of Congo up, or send as many of Hyson down the line. All graziers within a day of the rail are able to compete in the London market. The probability of any extraordinary demand increases the number of beasts arriving weekly at Camden Station, from the average of 500 to 2,000, and the sheep from 2,000 to 6,000. And these animals can be brought from the furthest grazing grounds to the kingdom without any loss of weight and in much better condition than the fat oxen were formerly driven to Smithfield from the rich pastures round Aylesbury or the valley of the Thames. Camden Station, under the alterations effected in 1848 to 1849, has a double line for goods wagons only, 2,500 feet in length, entirely clear of the main line. The length of single lines 
exclusive of the main line, exceeds 12 miles. To describe it in detail would be a very unsatisfactory task, because in the first place it can ill be understood without a map, and in the next, changes are constantly taking place, and still greater changes will be forced on the company by the increase of goods traffic, which, great as it is, is only in its infancy. Even now freights are paid to the London and Northwestern for all the way to China. But, as an agricultural implement of commerce, the locomotive has been comparatively as little used as the stationary engine, although hundreds of trades of a semi-rural character are drawing towards the railway lines and away from the country towns, which are formerly the centre of rural commerce, because standing on the highways or near canals, but such a revolution can only be effected slowly. At Camden will be found a large yard for the reception of the Midland County's coal, the introduction of which has had a considerable effect in bringing down the price of seaborne coal. The cattle pens have lately been altered and enlarged. Just before Christmas, this place is almost as amusing and exciting as a Spanish bullfight although as a general rule the silence of a place where, during every quarter of an hour, of day and night, so enormous a business is being carried on is very surprising. Twenty-four steam wagon horses or engines for heavy loads are kept in the circular engine house or stable. 160 feet in diameter with an iron roof. This form renders every engine accessible at a moment's notice. The steam racehorses for the passenger work are kept in an oblong building opposite the carters. The demand being more regular, there is no need for the expensive circular arrangement of stables for this class of engines. In a large boiler house, boiling water and red-hot coke are kept, ready day and night, so that on occasion of any sudden demand, no time need be lost in getting up steam. There is besides a wagon-building department, a shop for executing such trifling repairs in the locomotives as need no reference to the great workshop at Wolverton. The passenger carriages are most of them built at Euston Station by Mr. Wright. The carrying department is very conveniently situated close to the region's canal, so as to have easy communication with inland as well as sea navigation. A series of sheds occupy an area of 135,000 superficial feet, and the platforms to receive goods from railway trucks on one side and from wagons on the other occupy 30,000 feet. These platforms and sheds are provided with 110 cranes for loading and unloading, with a power varying from one ton and a half to 20 tons. By these appliances, Work of the most miscellaneous character goes on all day, and part of the night. The railway trucks and wagons are moved about by horses. It is amusing to see the activity with which the heavy brutes often bring a wagon up at trot, jump out of the way just at the right moment, and allow the wagon to roll up to the right spot by its own momentum. The horses are lodged in stables in the underground vaults, which we cannot commend, as they are damp, dark, full of draughts, 
and yet ill-ventilated. But it was necessary to use these vaults, and difficult to find stabling for such a number of horses close at hand. The carrying department at Camden is very miscellaneous, and moves everything from the contents of a nursery ground to a full-grown locomotive. But they do not impress a stranger so much as the arrangements at Manchester and Liverpool. The annual consumption of gas at Camden exceeds six million cubic feet. Under the railway system, the certainty and rapidity with which the merchandise can be transmitted changes and simplifies more and more every year the operations of trade. For instance, Southampton is the great port for that part of our Indian, South American and Mediterranean trade, which is conducted by steamers. When a junction has been effected between London and Northwestern and Southwestern, costly packages of silk, muslin, gold tissue, jewellery, may be sent under lock from the Glasgow manufacturers to the quay alongside at Southampton in a few hours, without sign of damage or pilferage, and at the last moment before the departure of the steamer. The communication between the docks on the Thames and Camden Town will enable a grocer in Manchester to have a hogshead of sugar or tobacco sent in answer to a letter by return of post, at a saving and expense which may be imagined from the fact that it costs more to cart a butt of sherry from the London docks to Camden Town than to send it by rail all the way to Manchester. To provide for the enormous and annually increasing traffic in passengers and merchandise, there are one state carriage, 555 locomotives and tenders, 494 first-class mails, 420 second-class carriages, 342 third-class carriages, 25 post offices, 242 carriages, trucks for the letters and newspapers, 201 guards brakes, 260 horse boxes, 132 sheep vans, 7,385 goods wagons, 14 trolleys, 1,155 crib rails, 5,150 sheets, 162 cart horses, 41 parcel carts, making a grand total rolling stock of 10,663. The passenger carriages afford 11 miles of seat room and would accommodate 40,196 individuals, or the whole population of two such towns as Northampton. The loading surface of the goods equals 11 acres and will convey 40,000 tons. If the tires of all the company's wheels were welded into one ring, they would form a circle of 72 miles. To keep this rolling stock up in number and efficiency, there are two establishments, one at Camden Town and one at Wolverton. Camden Town is the great coach house of the line, where goods wagons are built and repaired in one division, where sound locomotives, carriages and trucks are kept ready for use in another. The wagon building department of Camden is worth visiting, especially by railway shareholders. 
everyone is interested in railways being worked economically, for economy gives low rates and increased profits, which both increase trade and multiply railways. Hitherto, the details of carrying, especially as to the construction of wagons and trucks, have been much neglected. One line running north, it is said that the loss in cheese stolen by the railway servants amounts to as much as the whole sum paid for carrying agricultural produce. And on the line on which we are travelling, breakages have sometimes amounted to £1,200 a month. The fact is that railway carriers have been content to use rude square boxes on wheels, covered when loaded, if covered at all, with a tarpaulin, without any precautions for draining off the wet, to which it was constantly exposed when out of use, without buffers or other protecting springs, so that the wear and tear of the wagon and its load, from inevitable shocks, was very great. The imperfect protection of a tarpaulin was, and is, a great temptation to pilferage. These sources of expense and wear and tear of conveyances, loss of tarpaulin coverings, each worth six pounds six shillings, breakage, pilferage of goods, combined to sum up a formidable discount from the profits of railway carrying. And in the case of certain goods, lead the owners to prefer the slower transit of a canal boat. Even iron suffers in market value from exposure to the weather. Porcelain and glass are liable to perpetual smashes on wagons without buffers, in spite of the most careful packing. While tea, sugar, cheese, and all untraceable eatables are pilfered to an enormous extent, besides more valuable goods. It was hoped that railway transit would put an end to the dishonesty which was carried on wholesale on the canals. But where open trucks are used, this expectation has been only partly realised. For the temptation of opportunity has been too strong, for even the superior class of men employed on railways. In order to meet these evils, Mr. Henson, who has the charge of the wagon-building department at Camden, has built and patented a covered wagon with buffers, which unites with great strength, safety, capacity, and smoothness of motion. The scientific manner in which these wagons are framed gives them strength in proportion to their weight. The buffers with which they are fitted, and the roof, protecting from the weather, render them altogether durable and therefore economical while the construction, as will be seen from our vignette, renders pilferage, unless by collusion with a respectable party who overlooks the unloading, almost impossible. A diminution of cost for repairs of rolling stock, on an average equal to twelve pounds per annum, and of the cost for compensation to customers for breakage and pilferage, should be a leading object with every sensible railway director. Indeed, these losses, with deadweight and lawyers' bills, are the deadly enemies of railway directors. Further improvements in these wagons have been effected by the use of corrugated iron, which is light and strong at the same time, and the iron wagons have been again improved by employing iron 
covered with a thin coating of glass, under a new patent, which renders rust impossible and paint unnecessary. The simple contrivance by which the door and removable roof is locked and unlocked by one motion is worthy of the notice of practical men. Six hundred of these lock-up wagons with springs and buffers are in use on the London and Northwestern Railway. Mr. Henson has also succeeded in establishing and trafficking gunpowder by inventing a carriage of sheet iron lined with wood in which four and a half tons of gunpowder can be conveyed without fear of explosion, either from concussion or external combustion. The shops at Camden have room for building or repairing a hundred wagons. They are to be seen in every stage of progress. The great object is to combine strength with lightness. If the strength being the same, the saving of a ton can be effected in a wagon. It will amount to from 30 to 90 tons in an ordinary goods train. An important consideration, for dead weight is the great enemy of the railway and 90 tons of useless weight is equivalent to a loss of 90 pounds in sending a goods train a journey to Birmingham. British oak is the favourite wood for the frames of railway wagons. Teak, if of equal quality, is dearer, and inferior is heavier without being so strong. If in any of the many countries with which we trade wood, can be discovered as good and as cheap as English oak. The railways which are constantly extending the carrying stock can afford a steady demand. About the passenger carriages, which everyone can see and examine for himself, there is not much to be said. On the continent, where they cannot afford to use mahogany, they use sheet iron and paper mache for panels. In England, mahogany chiefly in the first class. When we began, stagecoaches were imitated, and there's some of the old cramped styles still to be seen on the Richmond line. Then came the enormous cages, pleasant in summer, fearfully cold in winter, without fires which have not been introduced in England, although they are found in the north of Europe and America. A medium size has now come into favour, of which some fine specimens are to be seen in the Hard Park exhibition. On the Great Northern Line, some second-class carriages have been introduced, varnished without paint, and very well they look. Economy again and the increase of branches have led to the use of composite carriages for first- and second-class passengers all on one body. These, which were in use years ago on the Northern Coal Lines, are now revived and improved. The Camden station has received an entirely new feature by the completion of the line to the docks and to Fenchurch Street, with stations at Islington, Hackney and Bow. Already an immense omnibus traffic has been obtained, a sort of traffic which produces the same effects on engines as on horses. They are worn out rapidly by the continual stoppages, but horses show wear and tear directly whereas iron and brass cannot speak except through increased expenses and diminished dividends. Leaving Camden, at which trains stop only on arriving, 
we swiftly pass Kilburn, where an omnibus station is to be established for the benefit of the rising population of citizens, to Willesden, where the junction line through Acton to the southwest is to commence. Willesden has been rendered classic ground for the hero worshippers who take highwaymen within their circle of their miscellaneous sympathies by Mr. Harrison Ainsworth's Jack Shepherd. The cage where this ruffian was more than once confined still remains in its original insecurity. Sudbury affords nothing to detain us. The next station is within a mile of Harrow on the Hill, with its beacon-like church spire. Rich pasture lies around, famous for finishing off bullocks fed in the north. Harrow School is almost as much as one of the finer institutions of England as Oxford and Cambridge universities. It is one of the great public schools, which if they do not make the ripest scholars, make men of our aristocracy. The school was founded by one John Lyon, a farmer of the parish who died in 1592. Attached to it there are four exhibitions of £20 each, and two scholarships of £50 each. The grand celebrity of the school rests upon the education of those who are not on the foundation. The sons of noblemen and wealthy gentlemen, who in this, as in many other instances, have treated those for whose benefit the school was founded, as the young cuckoo treats the hedge sparrow. Among its illustrious scholars, Harrow numbers Lord Byron and Sir Robert Peel. An old saw runs, Eton fops, Harrow gentlemen, Winchester scholars, and Westminster blackguards. Since the palmy days when Dr. Drury was master, and Byron and Peel were pupils, Harrow has declined to insignificance and has been by the abilities of Dr. Wordsworth raised again. The term of Harrow gentleman still deservedly survives, Harrow being still the gate through which the rich son of a parvenu family may most safely pass on his way to Oxford, if his father desires, as all fathers do in this country, that his son should amalgamate with the landed aristocracy. At Pinner, the next station, we pass out of Middlesex into Hertfordshire. Watford, their principal station, is within a mile of the town of that name, on the River Colne. Here Henry VI encamped with his army before the Battle of St. Albans. Cassiobury Park, a favourite spot for picnics, is close to the station. It was the opposition of the late proprietor, the Earl of Essex, that forced upon the engineer of the line the formidable tunnel which was once considered an astonishing railway work. Now nothing is astonishing in engineering. Near King's Langley we pass the bookseller's provident retreat, erected on ground given by Mr. Dickinson, the great papermaker, who has seven mills on the neighbouring streams, and reach Boxmoor, only noticeable as the first station opened on the line. The next station is Berkhamsted. Cowper the poet was born here. His father was rector of the parish. Berkhamsted Castle is part of the hereditary property of the Prince of Wales and Duke of Cornwall. 
at this castle, William the Conqueror, after the Battle of Hastings, met the abbot of St. Albans with a party of chiefs and prelates, who had prepared to oppose the Norman, and disarmed their hostility by swearing to rule according to the ancient laws and customs of the country. Having, of course, broken his oath, he bestowed the castle on his half-brother, Robert Morton, Earl of Cornwall. King John strengthened the castle, which was afterwards besieged by the Dauphin of France. When Edward III created the Black Prince, Duke of Cornwall, the castle and manor of Berkhamsted were bestowed upon him, to hold to him and the heirs of him, and the eldest sons of the kings of England, and the dukes of the said place. And under these words, through civil wars and revolutions, and changes from Plantagenet to Tudor, from Tudor to Stuart, with the interregnum of a republic, an abdication, and the installation of the Brunswick dynasty. The castle is now vested in Albert, Prince of Wales. The Chiltern Hills, including the Chiltern Hundreds, the only office under the crown always open to the acceptance of all, without distinction of parties, lies within a short distance of Berkhamsted. Ashridge Park, formerly the seat of the Duke of Bridgewater, the originator and author, with the age of Brindley and Telford, of our great canal system, lies about a mile to the eastward. The scenery of the park and gardens are fine. The house is modern. Train station, a mile and a half from town, may be reached from London, 31 and a half miles, in less than an hour by the express train. And the traveller arrives in as wild a district as any in England. Three miles north of Tring lies the town of Irvinghoe, possessing a large cruciform church, worthy of a visit from the students of Christian architecture, with an old sculptured timber roof, and containing a tomb with a Norman-French inscription. According to some, the tomb of Henry de Blois, Bishop of Winchester, brother of King Stephen. At the Rose and Crown, we are informed venison is to be had in perfection at moderate charges during the season. The station is the highest point on the line, being 420 feet above the sea, 300 above Camden Town, and 52 above Birmingham. In the course of the Tring excavation in the gravel deposits above the chalk, the tusk and teeth of an elephant were found, and in crossing the Icknailed, or Roman Way, about 33 miles, were 16 human skeletons and several specimens of Roman pottery. Two unique urns are now in the possession of the Antiquarian Society. Two miles from Tring we pass from Hertfordshire into Buckinghamshire. It remains a disputed point whether the name of the county is derived from Buchan or Buchan, a deer according to specimen, or with license, Buck, a charter, or with Camden from Buchan, beech trees, which, as in his time, still abound and flourish. Unfortunately, the state of agriculture does not allow the pastors of the country to take the ease and rest that was enjoyed by the celebrated Mr. Titurus before the repeal of the Roman Corn Laws, an ease which has cost many an unfortunate schoolboy a flogging. 
Our next halt, Cheddington, is noticeable only because it stands on the fork of which a short branch, nine miles in length, leads to Aylesbury. Aylesbury. Aylesbury, standing on a hill, in the midst of one of the richest, if not the richest, tracts of pasture land in England, is very ancient without being venerable. The right of returning two members to Parliament is found periodically profitable to the inhabitants, and these two MPs with a little lace constitute its only manufacturers. The loss of the coaching trade by the substitution of the railroad was a great blow to its local prosperity. Among other changes, the Aylesbury butchers often go to London to buy meat, which is passed in the shape of oxen through the town to ride to London. The berry field, said to be the best field in England, lies in the Vale of Aylesbury. The saying of good land, bad farmers is not belied among the mass of those who meet in the markets of Aylesbury. With a few exceptions, the farming is as bad as it can be. The farmers miserably poor, and the labourers ignorant to a degree which is a disgrace to the resident clergy and gentry. We had some experience of the peasantry during the railway surveys of 1846 and 1847, and found them quite innocent of thinking and reading, with a timid hatred of their employers, and perfect readiness to do anything not likely to be found out, for a pot of beer. They get low wages, live low, and work accordingly. It was around Aylesbury that for many years the influence of the insolvent Duke of Buckingham was paramount. To city sportsmen, Aylesbury has interest as the centre of Baron Rothschild's stag hunt. To politicians, because of great meetings of the country party held there. We must not omit to notice the duck trade carried on by the poorer order of people around the town. They hatch the ducks under hens generally in their living rooms, often under their beds, and fatten them up early in spring on garbage, of which horseflesh not unfrequently forms a large part. The ducks taste none the worse if for the last fortnight they are permitted to have plenty of clean water and oats or barley meal. Most of the Aylesbury ducks never see water except in a drinking pan. The cheap rate at which the inferior grain can be bought has been a great advantage to these duck feeders. The many means now open of reaching the best markets of the country will probably change the style and make the fortunes of a new race of bucks farmers. Those of the present generation who have eaten neither capital nor education can only be made useful by transplantation. Returning from Aylesbury and gliding out of the deep cuttings over a fine open country, we approach the Leighton Buzzard Station and see in the distance the lofty octagonal spire of the Leighton Buzzard Church. The town is half a mile from the station and commands the attention of the church antiquary from its fine church and cross. The church, says a very competent authority on such matters, is one of the most spacious, lightsome, and well-proportioned perpendicular churches. Cruciform, with a handsome stone spire, the roof, stalls, and other woodwork, very perfect. 
the windows, some ironwork and other details, full of interest. The cross stands in an open area in the centre of the marketplace and is 27 feet high above the basement, which is raised by rows of steps about 5 feet. At Leighton Buzzard, a branch line of 7 miles communicates with Dunstable. Dunstable is situated in the centre of the Dunstable Chalkdowns, where the celebrated Dunstable Larks are caught, which I make mention of in one of Miss Edgeworth's pretty stories. The manufacturers are whiting and straw hats. Of an ancient priory founded in 1131 by Henry I, and endowed with the town and the privileges of jurisdiction extending to life and death, nothing remains but the parish church, of which the interior is richly ornamented. Over the altarpiece is a large painting representing the Lord's Supper by Sir James Thornhill, the father-in-law of Hogarth, In a charity school founded in 1727, 40 boys are clothed, educated, and apprenticed. In 12 almshouses, 12 poor widows are lodged, and in six houses near the church, called the Maiden's Lodge, six unmarried gentlewomen live and enjoy an income of £120 per annum. With this brief notice, we may retrace our steps. On leaving Leighton, Within half a mile we enter a covered tunnel, and we recommend some artist fond of strong effects in landscape to obtain a seat in a coupé forming the last carriage in an express train, if such are ever put on now, sitting with your back to the engine, with windows before and on each side, your world out of sight into twilight and darkness, and again into twilight and light, in a manner most impressive, yet which cannot be described. Perhaps the effect is even greater in a slow than in an express train. But as this tunnel is curved, the transition would be more complete. At Bletchley, the church, embowered in a grove of yews, planted perhaps when Henry VIII issued his decrees for planting the arches tree, contains an altar tomb of Lord Grey of Witton, A.D. 1412. The station has now become important as from it diverged the Bedford line to the east, and the lines to Banbury and Oxford to the west. A branch connects Bletchley with Bedford, six and a quarter miles of length, with the following stations. Fenny Stratford, Lidlington, Woburn Sands, Amtill, Ridgemount, Bedford. And with that, I'm calling it there. If you would like to pick up where we've left off and learn more about the view of the English countryside from the trains, you can, as always, find it on Project Gutenberg at the link in the show notes. Thanks again for joining me in this episode of Sleepy Time Tales, the podcast designed around a bedtime story to help you to get a restful night. New episodes will be released every Sunday night to give you something fresh to help you rest in a new week but make sure to follow or subscribe in whatever service you use so that you get your new episodes whenever they come out. Good night, and sweet dreams. <laughs>